All right, well, turning to John chapter 11 then, um, opening thought for you this morning is that Jesus has divided people for 2,000 years. Uh, now, most agree with some things. Most agree, for instance, that Jesus was a real person, that he lived and died in Palestine somewhere around AD 30. Uh, most agree that he was unjustly crucified by the Roman authorities as a result of a conspiracy by the Jewish authorities. Um, but when it comes to why Jesus died and the significance of his death, then we see the division open up in really severe terms. Albert Schweitzer, uh, an influential German scholar, uh, famously described the death of Jesus in very picturesque language. He says that Jesus was crushed by the wheel of history that he himself set in motion. It's, it's a very graphic picture, isn't it? What he meant was this, that he, Schweitzer saw Jesus as an immeasurably good man. He even called him a true revolutionary who was passionate about being God's voice for transformation in a broken world. But ultimately, says Schweitzer, Jesus' death was just a tragic accident. It was the inevitable result of bad political strategies on Jesus' part. Uh, he got the Jewish religious authorities offside, and that was never going to end well for him. He underestimated the power of his enemies and the fickleness of public opinion. And so everything just went bad for Jesus, and he didn't get to do what he was supposed to do, what he wanted to do. But you see, that's very different from Jesus' own teaching. Because Jesus himself says that he died and came back from the grave very deliberately, very purposefully, sacrificially. Why? To break the power of sin and death, is what Jesus says. To demonstrate that he is both saviour and king of this world, and then to call as saviour and king, to call all in this world to live under his rule. And indeed, Jesus would say, and we'll see more of it this morning, unless a person understands and responds to this Jesus, King and Savior Jesus, they've not got the real Jesus, but a convenient substitute or even a, a counterfeit. And so the division often shows up these days among religious people. Uh, most religious people are at odds with Jesus because religious people reduce Jesus simply to a good man who was a model of doing good things. And therefore, if we do good things, we will be accepted by God into heaven. And that puts religious people at odds with Jesus' own teaching. They will not accept, as Jesus teaches, that our rebellion, that our rejection of God cuts us off from God and therefore required Jesus to die so that we might be restored to God, restored acceptance, restored relationship, and restored life. And so the division continues right down to our own day and age. Which Jesus 
And this morning we jump into the debate as it was happening right around Jesus, unfolding almost 2,000 years ago in response to the miracle which trumped all miracles. The one we looked at last week, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Four days dead, a rotting corpse, Jesus reverses the rottenness and calls Lazarus out of the grave as a newly formed person. And around that, the division opens up. So let me just recap the first 10 or 11 chapters of John. So John builds his biography, and that's what this Gospel of John is. It's really just a biography of the life of Jesus. Well, John builds the first half of it around seven signs or miracles. And each of those miracles point to Jesus and comes with an extended teaching from Jesus. And the miracle and the extended teaching together establish and illustrate his identity, his character, and his mission. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, which we estimate somewhere around three years, uh, Jesus repeatedly teaches that he is the reality of everything pictured, everything promised in the Old Testament, that period leading up to his birth. Jesus says, I am the reality of all those things. I'm the fulfillment of all those things promised. The reality of all those things pictured, all those things actually defined God's covenant people as nation Israel, all of those things are finding their reality now in me. And so at the very start of his ministry, the first miracle was turning water into wine at the wedding. And that pointed to the fact that Jesus was here to offer a fresh start to God's tired and disillusioned and failing people. The new wine of the gospel would replace the failed wine of Old Testament Israel. And Jesus went on in that section to, to claim that he was the new temple. The place where God's people would come to now to, to have their sin dealt with and experience new birth into new relationship with God. And the next miracles were the healing of a young boy and, and a severely crippled older man. And they pointed to the reality that Jesus was God. Only God could do that sort of stuff. And that he was with God and one with the Father in this mission to heal people from the disfiguring effects of sin, sin and illness and death. Then he fed more than 5,000 people from a schoolboy's lunchbox. Then he walked on the Sea of Galilee, coming to rescue and deliver his disciples when they were hopelessly caught up in a storm in the middle of the sea and were going to die. And these miracles point to his compassion, his compassion for his people, his commitment to rescuing them from destruction, his commitment to providing the essentials of life, bread and water, that will satisfy our deep thirsts of hunger, or deep yeah, whatever, yep. Our deepest need of hunger and thirst, sorry, yep. Uh, and then he moves on to, to, to healing a blind man, literally, quite literally, moving the man from darkness to light and life. And, and the teaching around that says that believing in Jesus is the pathway to receiving sight, true sight. And that leads into the passage on Jesus being the good shepherd, recognizing Jesus as the good shepherd who has come to find his lost sheep and calls them into light and life and safety. But the crescendo was last week, the seventh miracle, 
the end of his public ministry, the crescendo is Jesus moving Lazarus from death to life. Clearly, among all the other things that Jesus is, he is also the conqueror of death. Conqueror of death and conqueror of Satan who held the power of death. And that miracle trumped all other miracles, illustrating his claim from the very beginning of his ministry. To he said he had come into the world to dispel darkness and death, which are the inevitable consequence of sin or rebellion against God, and replace them with light and life, which are the inevitable consequence of renewed relationship with God and forgiveness from, uh, from sin. So John concludes his record of Jesus' public ministry, not surprisingly, with yet more mixed response to all of this. Mixed response to Jesus. As I said before, division has been a constant theme in Jesus' ministry. And not surprisingly so, because the whole point of this is that as people observe Jesus and hear his teaching, they're forming conclusions about him. On the one hand, many believed. Verse 45. Very simple, but profound voice. A verse, many believed. After hearing Jesus' teaching and seeing with their own eyes the power that Jesus had to deliver on his teaching, I am the one who can move people from death to life. People believed. They'd seen Jesus reassemble a rotting corpse. They believed. Like Martha in verse 27. They didn't necessarily understand how it all worked, but they recognized Jesus has to be God's king and savior. And as they believed that, then they could see the glory of Jesus and his father in this mission of salvation. And from there, they gladly aligned themselves to live under his rule and authority. But as usual, verse 46, there was rejection. Some people, at the same time as many were believing, some in the crowd were so offended by what they saw and what they heard that they went straight to the Jewish religious authorities to dub Jesus in. And I suspect it was with malice knowing that that would expedite the whole process that was simmering under the surface of somebody taking action to silence Jesus. And then verses 47 and 48, we see a different reaction, a reaction of fear, deep fear of losing personal sovereignty. Look at verse 47 and 48. Um, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Fear. When they receive the political and religious leaders, the council or the Sanhedrin, when they receive the news about Lazarus' resurrection, 
they did spring into action. They called a meeting. But their agenda wasn't what we might expect it to be. Their agenda was not to rejoice at the very obvious power of Jesus and a life restored. Nor was their agenda to try and discover the truth and understand the Lord's work among them through this person, Jesus. Their meeting and their agenda was driven by fear. For these guys, Jesus constituted no more than a serious threat to their lifestyle. And remind, I need to remind you, these guys had an affluent lifestyle. They had lots of money coming in through the temple and through their leadership. They had political power by the bagful. And that's what they saw threatened by Jesus. Their agenda, in other words, was self-interest. Even though the responses cleverly put spin on it, disguised it with pious concerns, pious-sounding concerns anyway, as though they were acting for God's honor and acting for the good of God's special people. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? You see, for these guys, the divide opens up like this. Fear of the Romans taking away their power and their source of wealth was greater than their fear of God over sin. And not only that, but it blinded them to what God was doing in their midst through Jesus. All they could see was the business options under threat and were blinded to what Jesus was doing. He had come to deliver them from that very thing. Darkness and light. Everything revolved around them. Our nation, our position, our place. These guys, even though they're the leader of God's people, these guys were convinced that the future salvation of the nation lay with them and their strategies, political strategies, and not with God. And ultimately, that led to murder. Verses 49 through 53. Caiaphas, you can almost picture, sitting in the background, hands behind his head, suddenly pipes up, obviously frustrated with all the banter that's been going back and forth. And he said, you guys have no idea. There's only one feasible solution to our dilemma. Somebody needs to say it. Somebody needs to commit to it. Let's do it. We need to kill Jesus. That's the tone of those verses. Self-interested fear became a joint decision to murder Jesus. Why? Quite simply, because he was a threat to their personal sovereignty. And that's an incredible irony, isn't it? The one who came to save and deliver would be destroyed out of fear of their enemies by the leaders of God's people. And that, we're told during the Passover feast, that's when it was all going to happen. 
the Passover feast in which God's people celebrated God's salvation, God's deliverance from their enemies by his special prophet Moses. irony is just palpable. And against that, as John loves to do in his biography, he contrasts the single-minded response from Jesus in the face of hostility, rejection, and just unmitigated evil. Jesus always moving towards his Father and his Father's glory, and glory for them both. See, a major theme throughout the whole biography has been, uh, a major theme in Jesus' teaching has been that he is one in nature with his Father and in his Father's salvation purpose, salvation plan. Jesus had just restated that very thing just before he called Lazarus out of the grave. You look back to verse 41 and 42, he had that prayer, which he quite consciously said, this, I'm not praying this for my benefit, I'm praying that for the benefit of everybody that's standing around listening and looking so that you understand that I and the Father are one in this. Every action of Jesus through his whole ministry was a joint operation with his Father to save God's people by dying to reverse the effects of sin. And now we've got another irony operating here because this story is operating at two levels. Caiaphas thinks he's solving a personal problem. But the Lord is using Caiaphas to affirm the truth of Jesus' ministry. Even as he utters the words which become the death sentence for Jesus. Because that's what he said. Look at verse 50. Under God's influence, Caiaphas is speaking God's word or prophecy. So these are God's words we're reading here. And look at what, look how it starts. And I'm indebted to uh, John Piper for this, this phrase um, or this idea. Verse 50, it is better. It is better for you that one man should die. Now that's God's word. It's better that one man should die. Better that Jesus should die. Huge call, isn't it? And I'm so indebted to Piper for, for helping me say that. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. What a huge statement by the father in respect to his son. And so we've got this delightful irony that as Caiaphas and his henchmen move towards the murder of Jesus we discover in this very same circumstance Jesus moving towards his Father, executing their plan for salvation. Friends, Schweitzer had it wrong. The death of Jesus was not simply a political strategic tragedy, which then God somehow or other, as they say in modern terms, after you get whipped at uh, cricket or rugby, that they get some positives from. It wasn't a tragic accident that God just managed to get some positives from. The death of Jesus was driven by his love, God's love, and planned by God for our good. 
for his glory and for the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let me say it even more starkly. God himself served the death warrant on Jesus, his son Jesus. He didn't just predict it. He unleashed it. And Jesus willingly moved towards glory for his father in every stage of that plan, right to the point of crucifixion and burial. It is better that he die. Jesus always moves towards his own death. Another major theme in Jesus' teaching is that of sacrifice and substitution that Marty's opened up so well already this morning. At the very beginning of his ministry, John the Baptist, when he first engaged eyes with Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The language of sacrifice, the language of mission and purpose. Shortly after, Jesus goes into the temple and he's outraged at how it had been become debased into a money-making venture. Declares that he will be the new temple, the fulfillment of all that the old temple pictured. He would be the place where people would come to have their sins dealt with and relationship and life with God restored. Now, at the end of his ministry, we see it coinciding with the Jewish Passover feast, where the blood of the lamb was a substitute which protected God's people from the wrath of God and delivered them into God's holy place under his rule. And again, God uses Caiaphas to affirm this truth of sacrifice and substitution. And here's how it works, you see, at different levels. For Caiaphas, in his mind, fearing the wrath of the Romans most, Substitution is, we will kill Jesus so that the Romans won't kill us. For Jesus, in his mind, fearing the wrath of God falling on his people for their sin, the substitution is this. I will offer myself up in a sacrificial death so that God's wrath will not kill you. And in the mind of the father, the substitution is, I will kill my son so that I don't have to kill you. God substitutes Jesus for us, his enemies. Do you get it? We can hear the words, we hear them regularly, it's, it's, it's our bread and butter as Christians, isn't it? But do you get it? Jesus moves himself towards death. Jesus moves himself towards death as the means of moving you and me to life. And life is acceptance with God, abundant relationship with God forever. My friends, this, this reconciling love is the heart of the gospel. It's the heart of the Christian faith. 
and it is just utterly amazing. And Jesus always moving toward his people, his needy people, even though they're hardwired to reject him. Yet another central theme in Jesus' teaching is his commitment to saving his rebellious people who don't even know they're lost. Repeatedly, Jesus declares that his works and his words, his words and associated miracles, were designed specifically to prompt belief. What a mark of God's commitment to his people, to his sinful people, that he gives powerful visual aids to help us believe Jesus' words. That's amazing itself, but even more amazing. Jesus also knew that his people left to themselves and left to their own choices could not and would not respond in faith and belief because sin had rendered them blind. They were, God's people, Jesus knew, were blind and lost and hopeless, had no way of knowing which way out. And if they, even if they could work out which way out, they had no way of achieving that through their own ability. And that's why I think Jesus was so openly and consistently opposed to the Jewish religious leaders because they were teaching quite openly God's people. They were teaching God's people that acceptance and forgiveness and relationship with God could be achieved simply by being good Jews and doing your share of religious rituals, going to the temple, offering sacrifice, saying the prayers, giving your, your, uh, your tithe. But Jesus knew that his people would never be accepted on the basis of performance. So he comes into this world and passionately offers them grace over and over and over and over again. And grace is being saved by his efforts on our behalf. Substitution. He can get it right when we don't have a ghost of a chance of getting it right. And even more than that, even more amazing than that, as was modeled in moving Lazarus from death to life, Jesus actually intervenes in the lives of his dead people and makes them alive to truth and righteousness. Why? Because nothing less than, God, than Jesus' intervention in our lives by his spirit will guarantee God's salvation plan will be successful and that God will be glorified. So Jesus can't leave it to chance, as it were. He can't give us any responsibility for our own salvation because we could stuff it up and most likely will, or almost certainly will. So God, Jesus actually intervenes and makes us alive so that the plan of the Father might be seen by all and the Father himself might be glorified. And again, in these verses, God calls, causes Caiaphas to affirm that Jesus is the good shepherd. We saw that back in chapter 10. Jesus spoke about being the good shepherd who would seek out his lost sheep from all different folds. Yes, there'd be some Jews would believe, but there'd be people from all around the world. And this is what Caiaphas affirms, that Jesus would seek out his lost sheep and bring them safely home to enjoy abundant life. 
where before his intervention, they were just aimless and lost and hopeless. So my friend, we pause the story. We'll continue it in a few weeks' time, but we pause the story for a few moments because it's appropriate that you also consider your response to Jesus. And so your choices are, are a bit limited, really, I suppose, in some senses. At least I think they're limited, but here's the first option. It could be something like this. Will the stench and decay, as we consider the death of Lazarus, and consider our own impending death, will the stench and decay of death drive us to Jesus for life, the fragrance of life? Life and security, not only in this world, but in all eternity. Or, like some in this passage, will Jesus be such a stench in your nostrils that you will turn away from him? through fear of losing your own personal sovereignty. But I'd say to you, as you consider that choice, you will lose your own personal sovereignty one day. It's called death. Then what? Or will you believe King Jesus, recognizing that his grace in salvation is precisely what you need? And is what he offers you right now, right here this morning. Or will you try and walk a middle line? Responding to a Jesus you fashion according to your own convenience. So you take the bits of Jesus you like and just add them to your existing religious lifestyle. So you can have Jesus and maintain your own personal sovereignty, but never really come under the lordship and the kingship of Jesus. It's yours to consider. Let me pray. Lord, your word, has you've caused it to be written at such depth and with so many layers. We pray that our response to your word might be equally deep and equally nuanced. Help us, Lord, not simply to say we believe in Jesus. Help us to examine precisely the Jesus we believe in, lest we be found to have a substitute or counterfeit Jesus, which is not real at all. Help us, Lord, to bring our lives to give up our own sovereignty and, and bring our lives under your sovereignty. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening.